welcome to the second edition of the Radio Griffin English podcast. This is me, Mr. Webster. Coming up in this week's episode, we've got a really good feature on Gothic fiction. Um, pupils in Year 7 are just studying a Gothic fiction unit at the moment, and also my Year 10 group have studied Jekyll and Hyde. Um, but if you aren't studying either of those two things, uh, you'll still find the feature really interesting. It's got loads of good information about Gothic fiction, the background to it, some of the key writers and the key texts. Um, and if you're interested in reading, then uh, it'd be a great way of finding out about Gothic fiction uh, and what it's all about. We've also got the second in the series of revision guides for the AQA GCSE English Literature Poetry Anthology. Uh, and in this episode, it's going to be a guide to Simon Armitage's poem, November. So if you're in year 11, you're obviously going to need that poem for your English Literature GCSE exam in May. Um, so it'll be a good way of revising the poem um, as you approach the exams. Okay, so we're going to move on and start our look at uh, Gothic fiction, uh, which is a movement in writing that started about 250 years ago and is still actually going today. A lot of modern novels will display features of Gothic writing. But what do we mean by movement? Well, in music, you've got different movements like emo music and indie music and death metal music, and they're all recognisable. You can listen to any death metal song and you will know that it's a death metal song because it's got certain features and the same for emo music, you can hear any song that's emo and you can recognise the fact that it's emo. In writing, these movements exist as well and the gothic fiction movement is something that's identified by abandoned buildings, um, derelict old castles, um, wild places, wide open spaces and creatures like werewolves and vampires, um, mysteries that need to be solved, curses. These are all the staple elements of, uh, of gothic fiction. Uh, and some of the most famous novels in, in English literature are actually Gothic fiction novels, novels like Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, Dracula, of course, by Bram Stoker, um, and the, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. These are all Gothic novels. And we'll look at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, first of all. The legend goes that Mary Shelley was on holiday in the Alps with her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and a friend, Lord Byron, a great English writer, um, and they were up one night in their hotel in the middle of the Alps, um, and they were all telling each other ghost stories to while away the evening hours. And uh, Mary Shelley went to bed one night after telling these after hearing these ghost stories and telling these ghost stories. And while she was asleep, she had this dream um, about this uh, scientist that wanted to create life, to play God. Uh, she woke up the next morning in a really disturbed frame of mind um, and started to write the story that became Frankenstein. Anyone that reads Frankenstein for the first time as a novel gets quite surprised about the difference between what they thought Frankenstein was going to be like and what it's actually like when you read it. The common idea of Frankenstein, thanks to Hollywood, is this green-faced uh, monster with a bolt through his neck, uh, which is nothing like the, the version of Frankenstein that we get in the story. The story all starts with um, a young boy whose mother dies. Uh, he's about eight years old. His name is Victor Frankenstein. Uh, and the death of, death of his mother at such a young age really badly affects him. Um, he's from a very wealthy family. He gets sent to university. Uh, and whilst he's at university studying medical science, um, he learns the, the secret, if you like, of, of um, bringing a creature to life uh, through his own research and through his lectures at university. He learns that he can inject electricity, this new invention of electricity, um, into... Uh, assembled body parts um, and bring this creature to life. So Victor Frankenstein goes around the cemeteries 
uh, and uh, digs up bodies and cuts bits of them off and puts them back together. Um, and he sets this machine that um, breathes life, if you like, injects electricity into this uh, collection of body parts and brings it to life. And there's this great part of the book where Victor Frankenstein has just switched on the machine, brought his monster to life, uh, and it describes the the beauty of the monster, his creation, he thinks is beautiful, but also very, very horrific. Um, and he abandons the monster. He's so freaked out by the monster that he's created, he just abandons it and runs away. Um, and this creature who looks upon Victor Frankenstein as his father feels completely and utterly abandoned. Uh, Victor Frankenstein runs off. Um, and at the, at the uh, second half of the novel is this great chase. Um, Victor Frankenstein and his monster who doesn't have a name, uh, running through the Alps and eventually ending up in the Arctic Circle. Uh, and uh, I won't spoil the ending. Um, but it's a novel about science, uh, as well as being a Gothic novel, it's a novel about science and the role that this new area of study called uh, medicine um, plays in, in society. A lot of concerns about scientists' ability to, to experiment with the human body, with electricity, they discovered that if you took an arm that had been removed from a person's body, obviously the person was dead, if you put electricity through the muscles, that the arm would still contract, it would behave as if it was still connected to a body. And they could make it, the fingers curl up and uncurl, they could make the fist clench and unclench, just by using electricity. Uh, and so these ideas caused a lot of people a lot of fear about the direction that science was going and the effect that all of these new areas of science were going to have on people. So Frankenstein represents this, this fear, if you like, of science and modern science um, and what effect it was going to have on society. Um, another novel that, that, that kind of has that idea in it is, is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, it is a novel, again, that features the idea of science going too far. Um, as science as we know it today um, took off in the Victorian period, um, a lot of people felt that, they, that science had, should have some sense of responsibility or lots of scientists practicing new ideas and researching new ideas and doing all kinds of strange things in their own secret laboratories. And in Jekyll and Hyde, obviously, if you know the story, um, Dr. Jekyll, a very, very well-respected um, doctor, um, finds a way of creating a potion that can separate his evil side from himself. And when he takes the potion, it gets rid of his good side, the Dr. Jekyll side, and turns him into Mr. Hyde, who is capable of going out and committing horrific acts of cruelty uh, and murdering other people. Um, and it's a novel that looks at the idea of science and has it gone too far. In the same way that we think today about cloning um, of dogs, if you have a dog that dies in America, you can take some cells from the dog that's died and you can clone the dog that you've lost and have a puppy born that is the ide identical replica of, uh, of the dog that died. Um, and we wonder, is that good for humanity? All of this direction that science is going in, we wonder whether it's actually good for us, genetically modified crops or another area. And so just as we feel today that science sometimes goes a bit too far, so too in the Victorian period did they feel the same thing. And so there are a great range of novels that were written, uh, most of them Gothic novels, that question the idea of science and where is it all going and how is it going to damage society. But it's not all about Victorian writing. Even today, there are still loads and loads of novels being written that are essentially gothic in the style that they're written. 
if you've ever read any Stephen King books, The Shining is a very gothic novel, um, as is Salem's Lot, also by Stephen King. Um, and the most recent one that I know of is a novel by Rebecca Stock called Ghost Walk, uh, which is a 2007 novel, which has many of the elements that you'll recognise as being gothic fiction. Um, it's well worth reading if you like that style of story, if you like mysteries, if you like supernatural, um, if you like ghosts and ghouls and vampires and werewolves, then you're really going to enjoy gothic writing. Um, so some of the novels that we've been talking about, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, and also Bram Stoker's Dracula, three of the great gothic novels. But also Bronte's Wuthering Heights is another novel that uh, has features of gothic writing in it, Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, uh, the Gorman Gast series by Mervyn Peake, fantastic, fantastic writing uh, from the 1940s and 1950s, but well worth reading. Uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, The Monkey's Paw by W. Jacobs, Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem, The Raven, is another example of Gothic writing. The Fall of the House of Usher. H.G. Wells is The Red Room. The list goes on and on and on. It's endless. If you want to find out more, just go to uh, Google and search for Gothic fiction or go to Wikipedia and search for Gothic fiction. Uh, and on the Wikipedia page, you'll find a list of, of a, a, a whole range of different Gothic texts. And I strongly recommend that you go out and, and read some of them um, just so you get your own understanding of what Gothic fiction is all about. Okay, so now we move on to a discussion of um, Simon Armitage's November, which is the second in the series of, of revision guides for the poems that you're going to study for GCSE English Literature, taken from the AQA anthology. And again, it will help if you've got your copy of the text in front of you while we uh, go through this, but uh, if you haven't, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and we'll start by having a reading of the poem itself. It's November by Simon Armitage. We walk to the ward from the badly parked car with your grandma taking four short steps to our two. We have brought her here to die and we know it. You check her towel, soap and family trinkets, pare her nails, parcel her in the rough blankets and she sinks down into her, into her incontinence. It is time, John. In their pasty, bloodless smiles, in their slack breasts, their stunned brains and their baldness, and in us, John, we are almost these monsters. You're shattered. You give me the keys and I drive through the twilight zone, past the famous station to your house to numb ourselves with alcohol. Inside, we feel a terror of the dusk begin. Outside, we watch the evening falling again, and we let it happen. We can say nothing. Sometimes the sun spangles and we feel alive, one thing we have to get, John, out of this life. Okay, so the first question in, is who's actually speaking in the poem? And perhaps it's one of two people who have taken the other's grandmother into her care home. Perhaps the pair are partners, or man and wife, because they go back to the same house for a recovering drink. But they could be, for example, mother and son. It's not entirely clear. As an alternative, the speaker may well be Simon Armitage himself speaking in his own person while John is a friend or a relation, to whose house they both go to drink in silence after taking the old woman to the home. Um, does it make more sense if he's simply helping a friend taking his grand to the old people's home? Maybe a pair of blokes are more likely to drown their inarticulateness, their inability to say how they feel in booze. Um, the journey to John's house doesn't seem like a journey to a shared home too. 
So we're not very clear about the relationship between the people speaking, but it doesn't matter. It means to you whatever it means to you. Personally, I read it as Simon Armitage um, taking a friend and that friend's um, grandmother to, um, to the care home. But it is entirely up to you. What we do know is that the speaker in the poem addresses the other person as John. John's own feelings are never directly shown to us, but the speaker's reassurance of him, using his name three times in a few lines, suggests that John is uneasy about what he's doing, whereas the speaker thinks it is time to do it. But what do you think is the relationship depicted here? If you can think about the relationship and give reasons for your own view, uh, then that will be really useful in the exam. The poem, it has a rather brutal honesty. Um, from the start, we read that we have brought her here to die, and we know it. It's a very blunt statement. It's facing up to the reality. It's not taking a grandmother into a care home to be looked after. It's taking her there to die. So it's brutally honest. Um, and there's a contrast in the poem between the apparent concern that's shown, checking in that the grandmother has her washing things and her trinkets, paring her nails, tucking her up to bed, and showing great care uh, and compassion. But on the other hand, leaving her to sink into her incontinence, um, it's something that you have to do. You take your, your ageing, dying grandmother um, to one of these uh, care homes um, and you do as much as you can. But at the end of the day, you have to leave. Um, and you taking her there and you leaving doesn't actually make any difference to the grandmother's condition. Um, there is nothing that you can do. So there is a contrast between the care that's shown uh, and the overall ineffectuality, the, the fact that it can't change anything um, that that care has. Um, she is still sinking into her incontinence for all that care that they show her. As the couple leave, the old woman's grandson, we assume John, is, is shattered. Presumably not by any great physical effort, but by the mental and emotional strain of getting rid of his grandma. The poem closes with a comfortless scene of the speaker and John drinking themselves numb terrified of the dusk which could symbolise their own mortality and unable even to speak. Note, the speaker is repelled by the physical appearance of the old people, dwelling on things like their weak, short paces they take four steps to R2, their incontinence, their slack breasts and their baldness, as well as their loss of vitality, they have pasty, bloodless smiles and uh, their lack of mental powers, they have stunned brains. The poem is set out formally in triplet stanzas, each stanza having three lines, with occasional half rhymes such as trinkets and blankets. Not a complete rhyme, it's a half rhyme. The words begin and again, they almost rhyme, they are half rhymes, uh, and ends in a couplet. Alliteration abounds through the poem, um, there is a, many examples of the S and B sounds in bloodless smiles, slack breasts, stunned brains, baldness. Uh, these may make the speaker's words seem even more harsh and bitter. Notice how Armitage plays on the phrase twilight zone. The light is fading, both literally, it's uh, getting towards the end of evening, but also metaphorically in terms of life fading away. Um, it also alludes, it's an allusion to the famous TV series of the name, The Twilight Zone, who was a TV series from the uh, 50s and 60s. Um, and in the programme, there's much speculation on life, death, and the afterlife, 
in ways that's grim and disturbing. So that idea of the Twilight Zone television programme fits in very much with the overall idea of the poem. Most interesting, perhaps, are the various references to time and date, beginning, of course, with the title November, almost the end of the year, a time when nights uh, become longer, days become shorter, we are subjected to more darkness, which is a symbol of approaching death. Words like twilight, dusk and evening. And they all add up to a sense not only of the grandmother facing death, but also the second message in the poem, its approach for the speaker and John. They become aware, of course, of the fact that they have a lot in common with these old people who they seem as monsters, um, but uh, they realise that, that, that in, in not that much time it will be them who will also be facing what, what John's grandmother has faced. The last line of the poem brings little comfort, uh, only a sense of occasional moments of pleasure and happiness in life as the sun spangles and we feel alive. And I think the main message in the poem is that uh, we have to get as much as we can out of our life. Uh, we have to get out of this life has two meanings. It is inevitable that we will die, that we will get out of this life. But also that we have to try and get as much out of every single day that we're alive. It's almost an obligation to enjoy our lives, not just experience moments of happiness as a simple joy, but actually to go out of our way to, to seek moments of happiness and enjoy them as much as, as we can. So whether it's a depressing poem or whether it's uh, an uplifting poem is entirely up to you. Um, personally, it's a good reminder, I think, that, um, that when the days go by quickly and we find ourselves one year older, something that at the moment I'm experiencing as it is my birthday um, on Monday, um, that uh, another year's gone by and it, do, it seems to have gone really, really quickly. Um, you have to make sure that you get as much out of life as you possibly can. Every day that goes by, make sure you extract the most of it. So personally, I think it's an uplifting poem. Um, it has its darkness. Uh, it has its depressing moments. Um, but as with life, it's, it's what you take out of it. Um, and if you try and experience as much happiness in your life as you can, and when you get to the stage that John's grandmother is in, at least you can look back on having had some real positive experiences in your life. Um, that's the message that I take from the poem. But again, as with all of these things, it's up to you. Examiner would like to know what you feel about the poem, what you've read into it. Um, some questions that you might want to think about after you've read this poem, after you've listened to this revision guide. Um, here's one for you. How far does the poem suggest that the two people in the poem agree on what they are doing? And how far do we see a difference between the speaker and John? Do they share the view or do they differ in their views? The second question is, what in your view does it is time mean? Does it refer to the grandmother, uh, the couple in the poem, or is it uh, everyone? The third question, what do you think is suggested by we let it happen and we can say nothing? Fourth question, do you think that the poet speaks in his own person here, or is he expressing another viewpoint? Is he speaking through a persona? Um, fifth question, do you think this poem tells the truth as you see it? Can you find something more to say apart from the suggestion of enjoying rare moments of sunshine? So, I hope you found that useful second of the um, poems that we're covering in these podcasts uh, for your GCSE English Literature Examinations in May. Um, next week we'll have the third of the Simon Armitage poems, um, plus lots of other useful information as well. 
So we come to the end of the second podcast, and uh, again, I hope you found something in there that will be a benefit to you. Uh, I want to ask you for your help, really. Um, a lot of these programmes will depend on what you, what you tell me that you want to see in them. Um, I will have my own ideas, but I would welcome your own ideas as well. So if you've got anything that you would like us to include in, this, in these podcasts, then let me know, either by emailing me, and you can find my email address on the uh, blog, um, either by or by putting a comment on the bottom of uh, of the posts in the blog, or by simply telling me uh, when you see me in school. Um, but if you give me your ideas, then I can make sure that I put together podcasts that you, that you're going to find really useful. Um, so I hope to hear your comments, um, critical, positive, or whatever you want. Okay, that brings us to the end of the second episode of the podcast. I will see you all next week. Bye bye. <laughs>